The following lecture was produced by the Rhode Island Student Assistance Services with funding from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Welcome to the Rhode Island Youth Mental Health Webinar Series. This week's topic, the mental health needs of LGBTQIA youth, what parents need to know, presented by Dr. Alex Karoglian. Remember, your feedback is important to us. Please fill out the survey in the description below for your chance at winning a $100 gift card. Thank you. Hello, everyone. We're going to get started. And thank you for joining this important webinar on the mental health needs of LGBTQIA youth, what parents and others need to know. For those of you who are, have been attending our webinars in the past, you know the drill. You're going to hear some uh, information you've heard before. I'm Sarah Dinklage, the Executive Director of Rhode Island Student Assistance Services. We at RISAS, in partnership with the Rhode Island Department of Health, are proud to bring you this series of webinars focusing on youth mental health and the ways educators and parents can foster resilience in their children and students. Located below this video, you'll see a description box with links to our website and Facebook page where we will let you know when more content like this will be released. In addition to these items, we have created a post survey to get your input on the contents being provided. After completing the survey, you also have the ability to receive contact hours for your time spent watching this presentation. There will be a reminder towards the end of our video to take the survey for a chance to win a $100 gift card. As the mother of a gay man who just married the love of his life on June 5th, I am cognizant that it was not long ago that ceremony of love could not have happened and the toll that would have taken on my son's well-being. Not being accepted for who you are and who you love creates enormous mental health challenges in our youth. Our presenter, Dr. Kuroglian, is an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and co-director of the Harvard Medical School Sexual and Gender Minority Health Equity Initiative. He directs the National LGBTQIA Health Education Center at the Fenway Institute, an organization dedicated to improving care for LGBTQIA people across the US. Dr. Kiroglian also established the Massachusetts General Hospital Psychiatry Gender Identity Program. Thank you again for your interest in this topic, and I'm now pleased to turn it over to Dr. Kiroglian. Thank you so much, Sarah. I appreciate that, and congratulations on your son's wedding. That's wonderful. Great to be with you all today. Thank you again for this opportunity to connect with this really remarkable community and to the organizers for this event. I enjoyed a couple months ago doing a similar presentation specifically for educators. So delighted today to be connecting with, with parents and, and families. And I look forward to having this be a dialogue. Please feel free to pose questions. And I think we're going to have some time at the end of the session to discuss and to answer those questions of yours. So definitely keep them coming and we'll, we'll get to them in, in due time. I'm going to start by defining some important concepts and terminology related to sexual and gender minority populations and youth. We're going to talk about the relationship between stigma and inequities experienced by sexual and gender minority young people, LGBTQI plus people. And we'll describe some best practices related to effective communication, creating inclusive and culturally responsive environments at home, 
in our communities, in our schools, and in spaces generally that our youth uh, live in and hopefully thrive in. First big point to make, admittedly, there are a lot of concepts and terms that get used when we first start focusing on LGBTQI plus youth, our own children and their friends and communities at school. And these can be often overwhelming and confusing initially. So let's walk through some of these concepts and terms together slowly to make sure we're all on the same page. The first big point to make is that sexual orientation and gender identity are not the same thing. These are two different concepts, two different experiences. Everyone has both a sexual orientation and a gender identity. Each of us on this Zoom session, for example, has one of each. And how a person identifies in terms of sexual orientation or gender identity will evolve throughout the lifespan. A young person may initially identify as straight and later identify as gay, may initially identify as a girl and later identify as a boy, for example. This is why, for example, in healthcare, which is how I come into this, we ask about sexual orientation and gender identity as health-relevant demographic variables, not just once, where we check a box after the patient tells us, breathe a sigh of relief and never discuss it again. We check in at least every year, if not every six months with our young patients about their sexual orientation and gender identity, because we know that this is a dynamically evolving demographic variable that's very relevant to their health and, and wellness and well-being. It should also be said that the concepts and terminology we use now are different than the ones we used 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, even a year or two ago. I'm hearing new terms, particularly from my very young sexual and gender minority patients in the last four to six months, say that I hadn't heard even a year or two ago. So part of this is a very rapidly moving linguistic and cultural revolution that can be part of why this may seem overwhelming or daunting for parents and families to keep up with. We'll talk a bit about how to do that. So I find it helpful rather than keeping up with the latest specific terminology necessarily to remain grounded in certain basic foundational concepts that will serve you well. The first helpful concept is the idea of sex assigned at birth. When babies are born in most countries and cultures around the world, they're typically assigned one of two sexes based on physical characteristics, right? Female or male. And in some cases, intersex, if they have characteristics or uh, features of sex development that are beyond traditional societal expectations for female or male bodies. We now know that these babies grow up, become children, adolescents, and eventually adults who may have a gender identity, core fundamental inner sense of their gender, that doesn't align with society's expectations based on the sex they were assigned when they were born. So what is gender identity? It's a person's inner sense of being a girl or woman boy, man, something else beyond girl, boy, or beyond woman, man, or having no gender at all. All people have a gender identity. And it's important to note that we also appreciate many people have a gender identity that doesn't fit one of the two traditional options that exist in society of either being a girl or being a boy, either being a woman or being a man. So we increasingly acknowledge that many people have what we would refer to as a non-binary gender identity beyond the two traditional binary options of girl or boy, woman or man. And we'll talk more about that today as well. So that's gender identity in a nutshell. It's a very core fundamental inner sense of your gender. Gender expression is how a person presents or communicates their gender to other people, to the outside world. And this can be through a young person's mannerisms, their voice, the way they walk, the way they dress, their hairstyle, 
And it's important to note that gender expression is quite complex as well. It's not necessarily the case that young person assigned male sex at birth would want to or ought to express their gender in a traditionally masculine way, whatever that means. And it's not necessarily the case that people assigned female sex at birth would want to or ought to express their gender in a traditionally feminine way, whatever that means. It's also contextual. Someone may have, say, a more feminine gender expression at school and a more masculine gender expression at home. It's cultural. What's considered feminine or masculine in one culture is not necessarily considered the same in another culture. And the reality is that each of us have aspects of our gender expression that are traditionally masculine and also that are traditionally feminine. We all have a bit of each. So just to say, finishing this before we move on, and we'll talk more about both of these concepts today, we can't predict someone's gender identity based on their gender expression, based on how they look or how they sound. So an important part of all of this is self-identification. We have to ask people how they identify in terms of their gender, not make any assumptions based on what we see or hear, and honor what they tell us in terms of their gender identity. And we'll talk more about that today. Now, it may seem like people with non-binary gender identities, which I mentioned earlier, would be a very small fringe subpopulation, say, within the transgender community. And it turns out that's not at all the case. This is a study we did with 452 people in New England. We found that 41% of these 452 transgender people identified as having a non-binary gender identity. That's a large proportion. And a large national study of 28,000 people across the country found that 35% identified as non-binary. And the younger and younger you go within the U.S. population, the more and more likely people are to identify in general as LGBTQIA+. So in Gen Z, I think it's something like 16% of the U.S. population that identifies as LGBTQIA+. People are also more and more likely to identify as non-binary in terms of their gender identity. So what's happening? Is this a social fad or trend? Not at all. It's that we're now making room for the naturally existing, naturally occurring diversity in terms of sexual orientation and gender identity that exists among humans. That's always existed. And that now in modern Western society, we're just starting to make room for, although in you know many countries and cultures and civilizations throughout history, more or less room has been made for the reality of naturally occurring human diversity with regard to sexual orientation and gender identity. And we're going to keep kind of evolving and refining and, and having more nuanced ways of characterizing and describing this and for people to identify in these ways. And we're seeing that in terms of demographic survey data now in, uh, in the U.S. just in the last few years. We have many resources on our website at the National LGBTQI Plus Health Education Center at the Fenway Institute in, in Boston that are all available for free. You can download them and watch our webinars and, and access our briefs. This is one of the many briefs on our website. We developed these for the U.S. Bureau of Primary Health Care. This is on providing affirmative care for patients with non-binary gender identities. And this is a PDF you can, you can download for free. A little more about gender identity-related terminology. What does the term transgender mean? It's an umbrella term for people whose gender identity doesn't align with society's expectations based on the sex they were assigned when they were born. For example, for people with a binary, tr more traditional gender identity, if someone is assigned male sex at birth and identifies as a girl, they may refer to themselves as a transgender girl, as a trans girl, simply as a girl, and not identify as transgender or trans. If someone is assigned female sex at birth and identifies as a boy, they may refer to themselves as a transgender boy, trans boy, simply as a boy. And in terms of non-binary youth, 
Many people will identify as non-binary. That's a term that they'll use. Many people identify as genderqueer. And we also hear the term gender fluid, which implies a gender identity that's more dynamic and potentially going to evolve over time and fluctuate or change over time. We also increasingly use the terms transmasculine and transfeminine. These are terms that are more inclusive of people with a non-binary gender identity. So a transmasculine person is someone assigned female sex at birth who identifies more with masculinity than with femininity. They may identify in a traditional binary way as a boy or as a man, or they may not. But that was gender identity and gender expression in a nutshell. I'm now gonna talk about sexual orientation, which is a separate concept. And sexual orientation refers to how a person identifies their physical, emotional, and romantic attachments to other people with regard to gender. And it's helpful to think about sexual orientation in three components. The first component is desire. This is whether someone is attracted to other people and the genders of the people they're attracted to. When I was in medical school, I was trained to ask patients, are you attracted to women, men, or both? We've now moved beyond that. We ask, who are you attracted to generally, or what are the genders of the people you're attracted to, to make room for the fact that there are more than two possible genders. In fact, we take one step back from that and we ask, are you attracted to other people? To make room for asexual and aromantic people who may not, you know, by and large experience attractions to other people. If they say yes, then we would ask, who are you attracted to generally, or what are the genders of the people you're attracted to? Assuming that's a relevant question in the particular, say, healthcare context that they're presenting in. The second component of sexual orientation is behavior. And this refers to whom someone is engaging in sexual or intimate activity with and what type of sexual intimate activity they're engaging in. Important to note, and again, this has a bit of a healthcare bent, but uh, when we think about sexually transmitted infections, for example, and risk, we know that this risk of sexually transmitted infections isn't inferred by identity. It's not because someone identifies as gay that they have more risk. It has to do with the particular body parts involved and what they're doing with those body parts, right? So someone may be a man who has sex with men, for example, they may identify that way and their partners may identify that way. That doesn't tell us anything about their particular body parts or what they're doing with their body parts, which is where risk of STIs may or may not come from, okay? Now, the third component of sexual orientation, you know, in addition to desire and behavior is identity. And this refers to the range of labels and communities that exist in society that a person may or may not affiliate with regarding their sexual orientation. So some of the more common sexual orientation identities include straight, gay, lesbian, bisexual, queer, asexual, pansexual, and there are you know, many more and more emerging. We have a glossary of terms related to sexual orientation and gender identity on our website that you can check out, lgbtqiahealtheducation.org. It's on the bottom of one of these websites, uh, one of these pages, sorry. And you know, important to note here, as I mentioned with gender identity, that we can't make assumptions about people's sexual orientation based on how they look, based on how they sound. And we can't make assumptions about how they identify even based on their sexual behavior. For example, there are plenty of men who have sex with men who don't identify as gay, don't identify as bisexual, don't identify as queer, identify as straight. So as far as healthcare goes, for example, when we ask people about their sexual orientation, whatever they tell us is what we document what we go based on, even if we know that their sexual behavior may not be what we would expect, for example, based on their, based on how they identify with regard to sexual orientation. So helpful to think of this in terms of desire, behavior, and identity, not necessarily being the same thing. 
Another important point to make here is that transgender and gender diverse people can have all possible sexual orientations. We can't predict what someone's sexual orientation or sexual behavior is going to be based on the fact that they're a transgender woman or a transgender man, for example. Now, what does the Q stand for in LGBTQIA+. Q may reflect someone who's questioning their sexual orientation or gender identity. Q can also stand for queer. That's a way many people identify to indicate that they're not straight, but that they also don't necessarily identify with gay, lesbian, or bisexual identities. And important to note, 100 years ago, queer in English meant strange, bizarre, or odd, right? And then mid-20th century, what happened? It became a derogatory term, a slur for particularly gay and lesbian people. And then a couple of decades ago, the community reclaimed this term and said, okay, well, you call us queer to hurt us. So now we're going to call ourselves queer and we're going to do it with pride. So you can't hurt us anymore by calling us queer. And lo and behold, there are queer studies departments now in colleges around the country. And queer theory is, you know, a discipline taught in, in universities. So I say that to make the point again, that language evolves over time. That being said, we can't assume that everybody's comfortable being called queer and in fact, some people, including gay and lesbian people of a certain age, may not be comfortable being called queer at all. Maybe the last thing they heard on the playground as a kid before someone harassed them or beat them up. So we have to not make assumptions about how people identify, ask them and reflect their own language back with them. And that's true for your kids and for their friends as well. You know, I use this acronym LGBTQIA+, and just to kind of round that out, what we use that acronym for, what it refers to is lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, which I mentioned earlier, having physical sex characteristics beyond traditional notions of female and male bodies. The A stands for asexual, people who primarily don't have sexual attractions to other people or don't find that to be an important part of their identity. And then the plus indicates that we're being inclusive of all possible sexual and gender minority uh, people and communities. Okay. And that acronym has evolved. You know, it used to be LGB and it became LGBT. It would be LGBTQ for a while. And, uh, you know, currently that's the most inclusive one, we think, by and large. Some people add 2S, 2Spirit, referring to Indigenous gender diverse people to that. Fenway Health's mission has evolved now to use the acronym LGBTQIA+. The only thing I'm sure of is that 10, 20 years from now, it's probably going to evolve and be something different. And that's, you know, that's part of what's uh, exciting and dynamic about this this topic as well. Now, to understand the experiences of LGBTQI plus people in many areas, in policy, in educational programming, in clinical care, in research, we increasingly use what's called a minority stress framework. And the idea here is that LGBTQI plus people from early childhood, developmentally, through adolescence into young adulthood and older adulthood, experience in so many cases, everyday discrimination, victimization, microaggressions, frank violence, unfortunately at a higher prevalence than the general population. The FBI in recent years has reported that one of the populations with the highest incidence of hate crimes in the US is African-American transgender women. So that's the horrific reality, unfortunately, many people are, are living with. And we think of all of this as external stigma related stress external stigma-related stressors. And this, over time, developmentally, can take a toll for many people and lead to some disruptions in general psychological processes, like coping skills, emotional regulation, interpersonal functioning, having certain beliefs that may be protective in the moment, but that can perpetuate distress over time, like believing it's never going to get better, nobody can be trusted, no one will ever love me, for example. And 
All the external stigma-related stress can also contribute to internal stigma-related stress, internalized homophobia, internalized transphobia, believing all the negative things that society may say about your sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, identity concealment, and expecting rejection in general, right? And these are internal stigma-related stressors that can develop. And all this external and internal stigma-related stress we think is related to what we see in our research, which is a higher prevalence of various behavioral health problems among LGBTQI plus youth, like higher prevalence of depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance use disorders in some cases. And all of this we think is related to uh, decreased self-care in some cases, decreased engagement in healthcare, and down the road, a higher prevalence of certain physical health problems as well. Now there's been an important shift away from just thinking of this as a minority stress framework, to talking about and applying a minority stress and resilience framework. So this idea that minority stress experiences can be a crisis, but they can also be an opportunity to develop adaptive coping skills and to thrive and have what some would refer to as post-traumatic growth, for example. And we'll talk more about that. We think about stigma in three components. One is interpersonal stigma. This is stigma perpetrated between individuals, can start young on the playground, and evolve and continue throughout a person's life. Can be from a teacher to a student, can be from a member of a healthcare team as shown here to a young patient, can be within a family for the child, for example. Second component of, or second form of stigma that we focus on is structural stigma. And this refers to institutional or governmental policies that may intentionally or unintentionally restrict the opportunities and freedoms of certain groups of people. One example in recent years that's been a big topic in the news is access to all gender restrooms for transgender and gender diverse people. I know this has been a big issue in schools, for example. I know trans and gender diverse folks who've been pulled out of restroom stalls because someone complained about which restroom they were using based on their appearance and health security. A big topic right now actively in the news is freedom for children to play on sports teams based on their gender identity, for example, in grade school, in high school. And uh, there's a lot of anti-trans political opposition to children joining sports teams based on their actual gender identity. And these are just a couple of examples of, of structural stigma. Intrapersonal stigma refers to the kind of internalized homophobia and internalized transphobia I mentioned earlier. These can be hard to shake even after someone is affirmed in their gender identity or comes out in terms of their sexual orientation and can potentially lead to a lot of shame and social isolation if not addressed in the family and school system and in the community. And just some data here from the US Trans Survey of 28,000 people nationally from every state, including Rhode Island. Of these 28,000 trans respondents, 10% reported a family member was violent towards them because they were transgender, 8% were kicked out of the house. Because they were transgender, many experienced serious mistreatment in school, like being verbally harassed, physically attacked, or sexually assaulted because of their gender identity. And 17% experienced such severe mistreatment that they had to leave school. Children of sexual minority parents are often very vulnerable to poverty as well. African-American children in gay male households have the highest poverty rate of any children in any household type in the U.S., and the rate for children living with lesbian couples is extremely high as well. Coming back to the U.S. Trans Survey for a moment, it found that transgender folks are much more likely to live in poverty compared to the general population, have much higher unemployment than the general population, much lower home ownership than the general population, and much more likely to experience homelessness in their lifetime or even in the past year. And this is in the context of pervasive familial discrimination, as we saw educational discrimination, employment discrimination, and, and housing discrimination. There's an Equality Act in the Senate right now that was passed in the House to pervasively provide protections 
for LGBTQI plus people in basically all facets of life. It was passed in the House of Representatives and it is now sitting in the U.S. Senate and we'll see what happens there. I should say these experiences of stigma can directly adversely impact health. Internalized homophobia, experiencing discrimination and expecting rejection are associated with increased HIV risk behaviors among men who have sex with men. And enacted and anticipated stigma result in increased delayed needed urgent and preventative care in a sample of over 2,500 transmasculine people in a study done by the Fenway Institute. So people won't go to seek care because they anticipate being mistreated or discriminated against in that context. LGBTQI plus youth are much more likely to attempt suicide than the general population more likely to experience homelessness or at high risk of HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. And it's important to think about this intersectionally, despite an overall decrease in HIV incidence in recent years, which is great. Incidence remains high and stable among Black men who have sex with men and has been rapidly increasing among gay and bisexual Latino men, particularly those 25 to 34 years old. So there's an epidemic of HIV among gay and bisexual men of color that we really haven't made an adequate dent in from a public health standpoint. Word about substance use, many trans and gender diverse youth report use using substances to cope with school-related mistreatment related to their uh, gender identity or uh, expression. And many report using substances to cope with challenges accessing standard of care, gender-affirming medical care as, as transgender and gender-diverse folks. In terms of body image dissatisfaction, trans and gender-diverse people have greater body dissatisfaction than non-transgender or cisgender counterparts. Transmasculine youth who do not have an eating disorder still have comparable body dissatisfaction scores to cisgender males who do have an eating disorder. And there can be a drive for thinness among both transfeminine and transmasculine people for different reasons. For transfeminine people who've already undergone an endogenous puberty, it can be a desire to just generally physically be smaller. For transmasculine people, it can be a desire to not have curves that are traditionally associated with more feminine physique. And of course, all this is based on sort of white Western notions of feminine and masculine bodies, just to kind of name that. And that can be problematic in, in a variety of ways. Important to note, transmasculine and transfeminine people report greater body dissatisfaction, not only for gender identifying body parts, but for body shape and weight in general. Important to note when discussing body image or bodies in general with young people, LGBTQI plus people, but youth in general, it's important to have a very body positive stance and be affirming. And particularly for trans and gender diverse people to ask them how they refer to their body parts, young folks, and then reflect their own language back. For example, uh, some young people will refer to their chest instead of their breasts because they want to use less gendered language. And it's important to kind of ask people that, check in and reflect uh, this language back with, with youth. You know, this isn't always the easiest thing to talk about, but uh, much higher prevalence of serious psychological distress among trans and gender diverse youth compared to the general population and 40% lifetime suicide attempt prevalence compared to the general population, which is almost, you know, a tenth of that. And this is higher than for any other studied population. It's important to note that risk of attempting suicide decreases significantly when trans and gender diverse people are able to access gender affirming medical care. So it's important to think about gender affirming medical care as life-saving treatment for transgender and gender diverse youth. This risk also decreases with strong family support. So strongly supportive families in very good research studies are a predictor of mental health outcomes comparable to other youth, of academic performance comparable to other youth, to later life outcomes comparable to other youth. So it, it, it is such a strong determinant. And that's why so much of our work focuses on family systems efforts, right? Working with families. We have groups specifically for parents at Fenway Health, parents of LGBTQI plus youth or trans and gender diverse youth. They're excellent resources, including PFLAG, National Organization for Parents and Families of uh, LGBTQI plus Youth, including 
chapters in Rhode Island and in Providence. So I, if you're not already connected to them, they do wonderful, wonderful work. And important to note, it can be hard enough to find care teams who are uh, confident and competent providing gender-affirming medical care. Despite that, people often encounter barriers to insurance reimbursement for hormone therapy or for surgery, even though these have been considered medically necessary treatment by the American Medical Association since 2008. So a lot of challenges at different steps in the process. Suicide risk is much lower in the general population, 4 to 5%, depending on the study you look at. For presumed cisgender or non-transgender sexual minority adults, the lifetime prevalence is 11 to 20%. And for gender minority adults, depending on the study you look at, it's 40 to 41%. So it's higher than it is for presumed cisgender sexual minority adults. And as I mentioned, many people in the U.S. Trans Survey report negative experiences with healthcare providers, like being verbally harassed or refused treatment because of their gender identity, not seeking care that they needed due to fear of mistreatment, and not seeking care simply because they couldn't afford it. And important to note for minors, you need consent from all the parents or guardians in the picture to be able to access gender-affirming hormone therapy or surgery, which is one of the important reasons for doing a lot of family systems work, because parents don't necessarily understand that to have a healthy, happy, thriving child, this care is really important. So we do a lot of family education along those lines. From the U.S. Trans Survey, again, in the preceding 12 months, 48% of respondents had thoughts of attempting suicide, 24% made a plan, 7% attempted suicide. And of the 40% who attempt at any point in their lifetime, 34% have their first attempt by age 13, 92% have their first attempt by age 25. So this is really the age we want to be very attentive in terms of risk of suicide attempt at. And if we can help kids get through childhood, adolescence, and this period of transitional-aged youth, their risk of attempting suicide is, is much, much lower once they reach adulthood. This is a study we did published last year in JAMA Psychiatry looking at the relationship between conversion efforts and suicide attempts. These are gender identity conversion efforts. They're also sex orientation conversion efforts. These are efforts to change someone's gender identity from transgender or gender diverse to cisgender. They're also efforts to change someone's sexual orientation from gay, lesbian, bisexual, queer to straight. And we did this with the U.S. Trans Survey. We found that 14% of trans and gender diverse people in the U.S. at some point in their lifetime had been exposed to gender identity conversion efforts. And exposure to conversion efforts is associated with more than twice the odds of attempting suicide in one's lifetime. And if you're exposed to conversion efforts before age 10, that's associated with more than four times the odds of attempting suicide in your lifetime. Interestingly, there's no difference between conversion efforts performed by a religious advisor versus secular type professionals. So it's not the religious component that's dangerous, it's any effort to change someone's gender identity from transgender or gender diverse to cisgender. We published the study later that year, the American Medical Association cited it in a resolution they passed in support of a federal ban on conversion efforts. And a year ago, exactly in June 2020, the United Nations cited the study in a resolution they passed in support of an international ban on conversion efforts by the UN General Assembly. Neither of those things have happened, but these, you know, these are just statements in support. There are efforts at the state level across the country to pass bans on conversion efforts, given how harmful they are. Less than half the states in the country have these bans, so it's a very active area of legislation and, and advocacy. This is another study we published last year looking at pubertal suppression for transgender youth and risk of suicidal ideation. So pubertal suppression is the use of what are colloquially called puberty blockers, gonadotropin releasing hormone analogs is what we call them, medications that can press pause on puberty in 10 or stage two of puberty or early puberty so that trans and gender diverse youth can kind of explore their gender identity and don't develop secondary sex characteristics 
that don't align with their gender identity, because that often contributes to really dramatic increased distress and unfortunately increased risk of attempting suicide at that stage. So press pause on puberty. Kids do need to go through puberty in a timely way. Otherwise, their peers are psychosocially developing you know, ahead of them, and it's not good for bone growth to not go through puberty. That being said, you want it to be a puberty that aligns with the child's gender identity. So you can then induce puberty with testosterone or estradiol that aligns with the child's um, with the child's gender identity. That being said, in this study, we found that only two and a half percent of respondents who desired pubertal suppression ever received it. So most people who wanted this medication never received it. And those who received pubertal suppression compared to those who desired it and did not receive it have lower odds of lifetime suicidal ideation. So these are very beneficial medications. And we published this in January of last year. The next day, the state house in South Dakota moved forward a bill to basically ban access to gender-affirming medical care for minors in South Dakota. And now most states in the U.S. have a bill at some point in progress to try to either criminalize access to gender-affirming medical care. So the prescribing physician, for example, would go to prison for prescribing it. In other cases, it's not criminalized, but you'd lose your medical license. And many of these attached to them are provisions to re report the parent for child abuse for trying to get their child connected to this care. So there's obviously a very low it's obviously very politicized. There's a very uh, low knowledge fund among policymakers in the general public and certainly among some clinicians as well, where this isn't part of the standard curriculum, uh, medical education training, for example. So we have our work cut out for us, and there's a lot of advocacy to try to expand access to this medically necessary care rather than uh, restricting it. This is a study we published a month ago in the journal JAMA Surgery, and this is with the same large national data set. We found that people who desired gender-affirming surgeries and accessed them compared to people who desired gender-affirming surgeries but didn't access them had improved past year suicidal ideation, past year smoking, past month psychological distress. So it's the same theme of better mental health among those who are able to access uh, gender-affirming medical or surgical care. And here are some data from that, from that study we published. So how do we overcome these many barriers that I've described to equity for LGBTQI plus youth? First thing we can all do is anticipate and manage expectations. LGBTQI plus youth have a history of experiencing stigma and discrimination in many settings, including in the home, at school, in community, in healthcare settings. So don't be surprised if you're speaking with a young person and make a mistake and the young person becomes upset. Don't personalize the reaction. Apologize when young person becomes upset, even if what you said was well-intentioned say, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to be disrespectful, and you can correct yourself. And that's a great way to diffuse a difficult situation and reestablish a constructive dialogue. Pronouns are a critical part of creating an inclusive and affirming home environment, school environment, community for trans and gender diverse youth. Many people's pronouns are ones we're more traditionally familiar with, like he, him, his, or she, her, hers. Increasingly, many people's pronouns and many young people's pronouns are they, them, theirs in the singular for non-binary people. So you'd say they are in the waiting room, the doctor's ready to see them, that chart is theirs, for example. This may take practice, you may not be used to using it in the singular, a lot of people get tripped up on the grammar, that's part of the process, you just wanna practice and apologize when you make mistakes. It's now officially in the dictionary as a pronoun in the singular, in fact, it was the Merriam-Webster word of the year in 2019, it was they, them, theirs in the singular. So language is, you know, really evolving based on society acknowledging the, you know, the existence of gender diversity, which is great. 
there are also many pronouns developed by and for non-binary communities, like Z here, here's. So you'd say, for example, Z is in the waiting room. The doctor is ready to see here. That chart is here's. And at Fenway, where we provide care, we'll wear pronoun pins on our lanyards, like the one you see here, to normalize the fact that this is a standard part of how we introduce ourselves. We don't make assumptions about anyone's pronouns. The same way you wouldn't see a kid and start calling them Richard, assume that their name is Richard. You also can't look at some a kid and assume what their pronouns are. We need to ask. You know, it's not it's not rocket science. It's about having a process rooted in cultural humility where we listen to young people and ask them how they identify, ask them what name they go by, ask them what their pronouns are, and reflect their language back in an affirming way. In terms of discussing gender identity with children and adolescents, for young children, say three to 12 years old, we could say something like some kids feel like a girl on the inside, some kids feel like a boy on the inside, some kids feel like neither both or someone else. What about you? How do you feel on the inside? There's no right or wrong answer. When we're working with adolescents, we may phrase it somewhat differently. Ask, what's your current gender identity? Many of them know that term these days. Some teens feel like a girl or a woman on the inside. Some feel like a boy or a man on the inside. Some feel like neither or both or another gender. What about you? There's no right or wrong answer. And we're you know, aware in healthcare that if we're having this conversation and a parent or guardian is in the room, that that may bias the answer. Or if a form is filled out in the waiting room, that that may bias the answer as well. So the American Academy of Pediatrics from middle school on recommends having part of a pediatric care visit just with the patient themselves so that we can you know, have some candid conversations, not just about gender identity or sex orientation, but a range of, of things where we're more likely to be able to help the young person if part of the visit is done with just them. With pre-adolescent patients for sex orientation, standard screening question or interview question could be, have you ever had a crush on someone? Was this crush on a boy, a girl? both or someone of another gender. For adolescents, are you physically or emotionally attracted to boys, girls, both, neither, another gender, are you not sure yet? And same thing in terms of parent or guardian in the room and wanting to do that ideally with the, with the young person on their own. A lot of what we try to do is be aware of the embedded gender language assumptions in, in how we talk that we've all been socialized to, to have in, in verbal communication with one another. And to unpack that and think about ways we can say the same things without having inherent gender assumptions in our language. Again, we can't tell what someone's gender identity or sex orientation is based on how they look or how they sound. So instead of saying something like, how may I help you young man? Or how may I help you young woman? To just say, how may I help you? And be just as warm and welcoming. Instead of saying, he or she is here for his or her appointment based on how someone looks. In our field, we would say something like the patient's here in the waiting room. Instead of asking a young person if they have a boyfriend or a girlfriend based on their gender identity or based on you know, how they look or sound, just asking if they're in a relationship, for example. Instead of asking a young person what their mother's and father's names are, which would assume that everyone has both a mother and a father, you could ask what are your, uh, what's your guardian's name or what's your caregiver's name or who are the grownups at home. For example, not everyone comes from a household with a mother and father. Some people have two moms, some people have two dads, some people have a single mom, a single dad, parents who may not identify in a binary way, or may have a guardian and not a parent per se. So it's really about universal design in our language that's going to be inclusive of, of as many people as possible. We try to avoid certain clearly outdated terms when we communicate, even though we can't keep up with all possible terms that exist. For example, the term homosexual in English was a term imposed on sexual minority communities by the medical community. So instead we reflect back the language that young person or a person in general themselves would be using like gay, lesbian, bisexual, or LGBTQI+. We don't use the term transvestite anymore, which is a term used for someone who wears clothing traditionally designed for a person of another gender. It doesn't have to do with gender identity per se. 
And we don't use the term transgendered ending in ED, which makes it sound like there was an event that made the person transgender, which is not the case. So instead we use the term transgender ending in ER, and it's always an adjective, never a noun. So we'll say she is a transgender girl, or she is a young woman of transgender experience, rather than saying she is a transgender or those transgenders. So it's always an adjective, never a noun. And we avoid the term sexual preference or lifestyle choice. Instead, we use sexual orientation to convey that this is a profound, important part of a person's identity and not a you know, frivolous uh, choice that they've made. We can create a culture of accountability in our homes, in our communities, in our schools. We all have to work together to do so and not be afraid to politely correct people if they make insensitive comments. You could say something like those kinds of comments are hurtful to others and don't create a respectful community. Access to all gender restrooms. We can advocate for this in our communities and our schools, basic part of people being safe and able to navigate the world freely and comfortably. In our field and in, in many fields, there's a move to systematically review forms, for example, to make sure that these are inclusive of people of all sexual orientations, gender identities, and all families. So instead of forms using terms like mother and father, we replace them with parent or guardian. Instead of husband, wife, we use terms like spouse or partners. Instead of marital status, relationship status, instead of family status, terms like blood relatives, instead of using terms like nursing mother, use the term currently nursing since there are transmasculine people who are delivering babies and chest feeding. Instead of having sections on forms that say female only or male only, like OBGYN questions, that may lead someone to inadvertently skip over those questions. You could just allow the patient to choose not applicable so they don't you know, inadvertently skip over questions that may apply to them. We all have implicit bias. We've all been raised in this society, including those of us who are LGBTQIA plus have internalized homophobia and transphobia, but we do a lot of work with all our staff to become aware of their own implicit bias, how that adversely impacts communication, rapport, decision-making, and we do that with case scenarios that illustrate how implicit bias can creep up in our, in our work and day-to-day -day interactions. So these are just some resources we published in that regard. And we do a lot of work engaging community in the life of our healthcare organizations and institutions to make sure that the decisions are reflective of the needs and priorities of LGBTQI plus people, having advisory boards that include LGBTQI plus folks, community satisfaction service, uh, peer support and navigation services, and sponsoring events like Pride this month in June, um, Transgender Day of Remembrance in November, Intersex Awareness Day in October, and so on. Really important to enhance the resilience of LGBTQI plus youth. It's not all bad, right? This is a community with enormous resilience that's overcome tremendous obstacles, achieved greater and greater integration into the mainstream fabric of US society in just a few short decades. Last few months, we have our first out gay transportation secretary in the federal government, assistant secretary of health and human services is a transgender woman, second most powerful person in healthcare in the US. And we can help particularly younger people feel connected to that resilience in the community that can be enormously empowering. So with that, I will stop. We have a few minutes for questions and discussions and please feel free to be in touch with any questions moving forward. You can email us at education at fenwayhealth.org. Thank you for your time. Does anybody have any questions? I actually have one, um, Dr. Kuroglian, that um, we get asked a lot, and that is, what, what tips or advice would you give to parents who want to help their child in a coming out process, especially when one parent is much less accepting or intolerant? And so it ends up secrets and being kept. And what advice do you give to those parents? Yeah, it's, a, it's admittedly a very difficult situation. One, I personally had uh, growing up and luckily everybody's come around now and is extremely um, supportive and, and uh, loving. It takes a lot of patience um, on the part of the accepting parent to 
continue to try to patiently engage uh, the other uh, parent or guardian who maybe hasn't come around yet, I would really encourage you to connect with PFLAG, the organization I mentioned that has very active, robust chapters in, in Rhode Island as well. This is what they're specialized in, what their expertise is, working with families and all these very complex dynamics that can be very painful for the child and for, for everyone involved, including the parent who is not yet accepting. You know, that's a very painful position for them to be in because they're, they're really missing out at the end of the day in terms of um, having these very joyful experiences with their, with their child and their, and their family. And um, it, it's a very long arc, but uh, parents often get there. It can take years. And you can, you can very much be there for your child through that um, while being careful to not create splits and, and still try to figure out what kind of relationship a child and the parent who isn't fully accepting yet can still have, even if this um, aspect is one that um, they can't necessarily bond over and, and celebrate together yet. Thank you. Um, we have asking you to repeat the name of that group, the support group. Absolutely, it's PFLAG. Uh, I'll put the acronym here. If you just Google it, you will find uh, their website and they have very active chapters and resources in uh, Providence and Rhode Island more broadly. And somebody says, asks, my transgender daughter is out to my husband and I, but is afraid to come out to extended family thinking they may not understand because of their age. Any suggestions on how to assure her that her grandparents love her? Absolutely, uh, it's a difficult situation to be in. I think uh, you never want to pressure anyone to come out before they're ready to do so. You want people to do it at their pace on their own time. Um, you can explore with them what their concerns are about how their family members will react. Um, you know How they'll feel if family member doesn't have an ideal reaction and um, ask them if they would like you to or give you permission to kind of um, negotiate the relationship or uh, have a conversation with that family member beforehand but I certainly wouldn't disclose it if they're not ready to and um, that's fine if they're only ready to be out to certain family members or people in their life that's okay there's it's not a race. Um, people um, were asking about the availability of your slide deck and we will make that available on our website. Um, well, thank you very much, Dr. Kuroglian, another really enlightening and wonderful webinar. Um, we hope to have you back in the fall. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me again. It's, it's always a delight and please feel free to connect with uh, our center at any time and looking forward to yes. connecting with you again thank after you. the summer. Nice summer to all. Yeah, thank you all for coming. Thanks for listening. To find more content like this and see the video version of these webinars, please see the links in the description below. If you like this one, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.